Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using GrowCFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the GrowCFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got Paul McGowan with me. Paul, hello. Kevin, uh, good afternoon. I'm uh, uh, very pleased to uh, be joining you on the CFO show this afternoon. So, Paul, Tell us just a little bit about yourself. You're, you're an experienced CFO, but how did you get to where you are today? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a very, very long story, Kevin. Um, uh, that's all right. We've got all show to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, my early career was at Ford Motor Company. Um, I was 11 years at, at Ford. I joined them straight from, uh, straight from college. And I was with them for about uh, 11 years, the, the highlight of which undoubtedly was the year and a half I spent over in Cologne um, right. in their German operations, um, responsible for looking at the um, pricing in the uh, German market. That was that was fascinating. Um, very much enjoyed that. Yeah, I, I used to work for, as business accountant in a, a business in ICI that uh, Ford was one of our main customers. We were, we were producing polypropylene compounds for all sorts of clever new under bonnet tech technologies and anti-scratch interior grades and things like that so very familiar with Ford and quite familiar from back then it's quality was the the real thing then and uh, we had to get ourselves engaged and registered with Ford's Q101 quality standard which was a a revelation to us yes yes I remember that that was that was industry leading at the time yeah um yeah and I was uh, my the last uh, piece of my Ford career was the uh, electronics division um, at the time when the um, uh, electronics were becoming a major part, you know, with emissions and mm, requiring yes. um, uh, underbonnet computers. And of course, the the engine compartment of a vehicle is a hugely hostile environment to um, to anything electronic. So it needs to be sort of, you know, put in a secure box and properly protected from noise and vibration and all that kind of stuff. So Absolutely. Everything that can go wrong with electronics generally turns up under a bonnet. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's hot, it can get wet. Um, yeah. It's um, uh, lots of vibration. So that's rattly. So all, all sorts of stuff that electronics really doesn't like. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that took you took you through 11 years in Ford. So what, what sort of level were you at when you left Ford, Paul? Um, well, sort of middle management grade, I suppose you'd call it. Um, uh, <laughs> my... It was, a, it was a time of quite a lot of change um, within that organisation. My first job in the Ford business, when I started as a graduate trainee in 1982, um, there you go, that's aged me, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, my first role there was um, manpower analysis. And we had something like 28, 29,000 white collar employees um, mm-hmm. in Ford across Europe. When I left, it was uh, which was eleven years later. It was half that. Yeah. Um, so massive amount of change. Um, lots of that driven by technology, um, and, and again, sort of, um, it, it, you almost can't picture it now. But when I when I joined, there was an office of about seven or eight of us, and we shared two computers. Oh, yeah, and I um, can relate with that. And you yeah. and I must be of a similar age because 1982, I started my training contract to be a chartered accountant with BDO. And go. I remember the day that the first IBM PC turned up, and we wondered. We all sat around looking at it and admiring this wonderful thing. And 
discovered that it had this thing on it called a spreadsheet. Uh. And it was uh, 26 columns by 256 rows. We thought this was a fantastic <laughs> piece of analysis paper we could do stuff with. <laughs> uh, we're going to sound. We're going to start sounding like a couple of very old gits in a minute. Yeah, yeah. But, oh, you, you've got to the end of that time at, at Ford. You're middle management, very much a finance guy, and oh. that I suppose is where an awful lot of uh, gross CFO members find themselves these days, and wanting to make that transition from middle management up to board level which clearly is something that you did very very satisfactorily yeah. so what happened between leaving ford and where you where you are effectively now with many years of cfo experience to get you up to that next level um i mean i suppose really when you come down to it it's my experience has been on the job training yeah um, you know, there was nothing like gross CFO, you know, you, you've done your, you've done your accounting training, you know, and I'd done SEMA uh, when I was at, when I was at Ford, um, you know, even though that wasn't particularly encouraged, it was sort of, you know, well, we'll teach you all you need to know here was kind of the attitude. Um, yeah, but that, that kind of thing is not really transferable outside of Ford, is it? Exactly, exactly. So, I, you know, I'd done, I'd done SEMA while I was there, you'd done BDO and you get your accountancy qualification. And then typically, I mean, I think at that time and probably and probably still um, still the case, you know, everything else you learned on the job, picked up as you went along and learned from those around you. Yeah. Um, learned from peers, learned from learned from bosses. You know, I've had some you know, outstanding people around me and I've worked with some fantastic people over the years. And you you learn from them, you learn by doing and ultimately you. <laughs> You learn from your mistakes as well a bit, don't you? Yeah, I think um, I think you learn more from your mistakes, to be honest, Paul. Than you and you know, sometimes you just have to right. bluff it out a bit. I mean, it, there was a, a piece I noticed. Um, I'm not sure whether it was uh, whether it was Catherine on um, on Grow CFO, but you know, imposter syndrome. Yeah. And there's some stuff where you you sort of have to think. Well, you have to kind of put that aside and and just get on and and do your best. Um, I mean, I can remember one bit of culture shock that was quite fun I, from Ford. And at Ford, the, the where you wanted to be was doing the analysis. So, I mean, I, I said when I was in uh, in Germany, I was doing pricing. You know, that was an analytical role. The pure accounting was often done in a different building. Yeah. Um, so I left Ford and I went to a services business called Serco, um, which you will have heard of. They do a lot of government contracts. They got very big on government outsourcing. And uh, I'd not been there very long. And my financial controller, who, who'd been there ages, he said to me, he said, oh, we said, we, we've got this, um, got this transaction, got this um, entry we need to put in the accounts. Um, not sure where to put this. And I said, oh, well, you know, we can make a case, you know, we can put that in exceptionals or whatever it was. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, um, I'm just wondering where to put the other side. <laughs> I was, the other side, um, the other side. Uh, wait a minute. Um, uh, debit, credit. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I'll have a think about that. Get back to you. <laughs> just throughout the, throughout the entire history of my career with Ford Motor Company, um, you know, I'd never once had to worry about a debit and a credit. It was all, you know, about vehicles or it was costings or it and was that, volumes and forecasts. And That's right. Um, that sounds very, very similar to my career in ICI as a business accountant. So somebody else worried about actually doing the financial accounting. Yeah. My problem came when the, 
two profit and loss accounts turned up on my desk, one from UK and one from Holland, where we had our two manufacturing plants, and 10 other profit and loss accounts turned up from all the other countries that were currently in Europe, where we had sales offices. And yeah. Muggins's job was to put together a set of management accounts for the business. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Never, never worried about the balance sheet. That was somebody else's problem. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then you have to worry about consolidation adjustments and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. That you... <laughs> um, yeah, so, so I, I worked at Serco for a bit. Um, uh, left there, had a few months off, which is when I wrote um, when I wrote my book, The Finance Manual for Non-Financial Managers. And that was inspired by um, some of the electronics engineers at Ford. Right. Who again, were super bright. Um, electronics engineers so you know almost literally rocket scientists yeah um, but when you spoke to them they had no idea about budgets no idea about project appraisal discounted cash flow all that kind of stuff because why would they you know you know well, exactly nobody ever exactly. nobody ever taught them that nobody ever even mentioned it so um, is that book still available Paul? um i think it we're certainly out of print now um yeah. you, i think you can still get some but they're sort of they're pretty much they remaindered um but it was, um, they, they did tell me at the time if it sold 5,000, it'd be considered the bestseller and it did quite a bit more than that. So, yeah. Um, so it was, it was quite, it was quite fun at the time. Mm. Um, so um, I then moved, that was when I, uh, so I left, um, left Serco. That was when I moved up to the Northwest. Um, so I moved up to the Northwest in 1996. Um, and I've been here ever since, just south of Manchester. Right. See, I'd call that the North Midlands. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. There's a Scott talking. <laughs> and then Geordie talking. <laughs> if it takes longer to get there on the train than it takes to get to London, it's not in the North. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's, yeah, yeah. Everybody's got their own, uh, everybody's got their own different definitions, aren't they? But um, when, I, well, when I moved up, I joined, I joined part of United Utilities, which was a yeah. relatively recent combination of Northwest Water and um, and Norweb, the the electricity business, and uh, so I moved up and found somewhere near the airport, to a place called Wilmsburg. And one of my guys said to me, "Yeah, so that's where all the that's the bloody southerners live." <laughs> so, <laughs> I called myself a bloody southerner after that, but um, yeah, you can't you can't win, can you? You um, can't win at all. But that that's quite a change, Paul. You've you've gone from automotive manufacturing hmm. to a big big private sector outsourcer of, of government stuff now you've gone into a place that's that's effectively merging two utilities businesses together mm. yeah that, that's that's quite a jump across different industry groups yes although the the logic for the united utilities piece was they were creating that so circo had been business processes and business process outsourcing yeah um uh, or, or, and in fact, what we were doing there, I was part of the international division. A lot of it was air traffic control. Right. Um, which is kind of fun. Buying insurance for air traffic control services is fun. Um, uh, but but having done business process outsourcing, um, that's the, the, the link to the United Utilities business was they had created their own in-house business services division. Yeah. <clears throat> so things that the... The, the water company and the electricity had in common were big chunks of IT, but also huge customer service areas. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, uh, and also the accounting. So I ended up being FD for the um, services business and the 
um, director of accounting services for both Northwest Water and Norway, <coughs> um, which given that I've been struggling with debits and credits sort of three years before was probably, <laughs> as you say, quite a leap, but you know, it's, um, there were there were some fairly big teams doing the doing so i was you know literally looking at sort of people running a shared services center you've definitely got a balance sheet there yes yeah but it's also you know how you could how you could bring those together and what bits you could commonize and you know where you could where you could share costs and take costs out of the structure because you could imagine with two very big utility companies relatively recently privatized yeah. um, there were some but, fairly big chunks of costs that that could be shared which is absolutely a whole load of duplication in finance functions hr functions procurement functions yeah Yeah. you're in united utilities um but that's not the end of your career paul is it you've moved on beyond there no no i did um so having done some fairly big um you know some fairly steady roles i then moved out to a role in um, BICC, which is a, <clears throat> a business that nobody remembers anymore, but it owned Balfour Beatty. So mm-hmm. it was the parent company for Balfour Beatty and, um, and a few others. And um, uh, uh, they, uh, they were again doing some reorganization and they had a comms cable division and a power cable division. And I joined the communications cable division working for um, a super bright guy um and literally joined them at the time when uh because they were floated in the city there was um uh, they were being circled by um a big breakup fund who'd done the sum of the parts valuation and concluded yeah. that the business was worth more in its component parts than it was as a whole so literally months after i joined them um they were selling the division um yeah so what was a sort of <clears throat> not standard but you know a a big divisional fd role became a disposal mandate within uh, within months yeah, of so a whole them. load of different experience again paul yes so it puts uh, I mean, you into fight find out how to how to dispose of a business i guess <coughs> all those due diligence sorts of things come up there and yep. providing data rooms and things like that yeah yeah yeah, exactly. And I'd not really done, I'd done, a, I'd done a small acquisition when I was at Serco, a small Canadian business. Um, but again, I mean, people talk about planning your CV and planning your career, and it's, it's largely hogwash. Um, oh, no, because... I totally, totally agree. These, the things that come along as opportunities, you would never, in my experience, certainly with mine, you'd never write down a plan. No. It, it just happened. No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you, I mean, literally, because I, I didn't join them to sell the division. I, I joined them, um, you know, went through part of a budget process in the first few weeks. And then literally a fortnight after that was in a conference room in New York going through the, the first stages of the due diligence process um, with them ask, firing all sorts of questions at me. And I've been there. I've been in the business literally less than three months. Yeah, that's <clears> one hell of a learning curve to be doing answering all those due diligence questions on a business that you're only learning yourself yeah there was quite a bit of not sure but i'll find out going on (laughs) (laughs) i can imagine um but you know a lot of it was also you know what 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 i what i'd learned fairly quickly and fortunately the first bit i've been doing was was budgeting but i also got sucked into costing um which was one of the little anecdotes i had for you actually 
um, because one of the other things, apart from selling the business, um, one of the other things we'd uh, that, that we were looking at and that was frustrating the chief exec was we, we got a range of products um, and with communications cables, a lot of what we were supplying were the big national utilities, <clears throat> pan-European. And he was fairly new to the business himself. He'd been there about a year, year and a half when he hired me and was getting very frustrated because he kept spending quite a lot of time and resource putting in fairly big commercial bids for fairly big chunks of business and um, kept losing. And some of the feedback he said was, you know, well, you're too expensive. And um, so when I landed, he said, well, look, can you have a look at this for me? He said, because I've been through the costings and they all look fairly straightforward. Um, uh, you know, I, I get it. I completely understand it. It all looks right. It all looks fine. Um, but I'm being told we're too expensive. A couple of the competitors were pseudo public ownership. Um, and the assumption was, well, you know, are they are they bidding sort of at or below cost just because they want the business and just because they want, you know, to keep the wheels turning? Um, uh, so I looked at the the costing process, and there was a you know small team there of cost accountants, and the guy running it was quite commercial, and um, so I went through it, spent some time going through it, um, and they were doing all the right things. Um, you know, they got a pretty good grasp of the bill of materials. So they knew what the materials were costing them. Um, so that was all fine. Um, they'd got a pretty good grasp of um, how they were costing direct labor and machine hours and all this kind of stuff. So that was all, that all looked very sensible. And then they were doing an overhead allocation. <clears throat> so I was kind of looking at that. And the business, you know, been through a rocky time. Um, the business was, the, the volumes were at a depressed level. So I said to them, well, how are, you, how are you assessing volume when you allocate overhead? And of course, they were doing overhead allocation on actual volumes. Mm-hmm in a factory that was running at less than 50% capacity. Mm, written alarm bell. So I had to have this philosophical conversation with them about, well, okay, so you know what happens if the, if the volume falls a bit more, you're gonna try and recover the same amount of overhead on less volume. Guess what's gonna happen? Your costs are gonna go up. Guess what's happening? Your volume's gonna fall further. Um, a few days with the head scratching later, <laughs> <laughs> we'd come up with a, a notional overhead allocation based on a sensible forecast of what the factory should be doing. Yeah. Um, uh, so I went back to um, my, my CEO, who as I said was a super bright guy. I mean, you know, sort of INSEAD MBA, spoke multiple languages, you know, yada, yada, yada. And kind of the light went on. I went, oh shit, you know, <laughs> that's what that, you know, I completely get it now. That's what we've missed. Da, 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 da. And it was um, and you know, guess what? We won the next bid. Um you win the next bid, you put more capacity in the factory. 
and the amount of that overhead you're not recovering starts going exactly. down and down and down. It's a and big it's, part of turning it, business around. And it's a and I use it as a as an example of where you can end up looking at something that you weren't necessarily brought in to look at. Um, and because you look at it with a fresh pair of eyes, never be afraid to challenge the assumptions that are being made. Mm. Because that costing department were doing nothing wrong. Quite. They were building the costs based on bills and materials. They were building the costs based on, you know, actual routes and workload in the factory. And then they were allocating overheads based on what they thought the volumes were, which is what the actual volumes were. And on, a, on the basis of costing for existing customers, what they were doing wasn't wrong. What they hadn't done was thought about the, well, wait a minute, what am I actually producing this information for? And what are the consequences of the information, etc. Um, so it's just a fun example of how you know when you go into a business and you look at things with new eyes, you'd never be afraid of challenging the assumptions, never be afraid of challenging the common wisdom. Well, that, that's something that you've done on a good few occasions, gone into that new business. So any any other lessons that you draw out of that? That that's one story about. So that very first period in there, that, are there any any other lessons you'd give to somebody joining a new business as a, a senior finance guy for the first time? Um, <clears throat> well, I, I can give you another couple of sort of examples, which you know may or may not be useful, but it, it does come down to um, you know don't be afraid to ask questions of people. Don't be afraid to accept the fact that you're on a learning curve ask the questions but then challenge the answers yeah um because some of the answers will be because we've always done it that way so you know another even so, so that was that was an example that actually comes comes to costing which is sort of you know mm. halfway up the syllabus if you're doing your accounting exams um one even simpler example was a manufacturing business that that I, that I joined, um, and they they got into trouble. They'd lost the confidence of their bank. They'd overpromised and underdelivered, um, and their financial forecasts were basically you know they put in a budget and then shortfall it. They put in a forecast and they shortfall it, <clears throat> and this had been going on for a couple of years. Um, they. They, they'd lost the previous CFO. I joined them on an interim basis. Um, and um, I, I rolled up. And the second board meeting I attended, they'd been looking to try and get some private equity money in. And um, I'm sat around the table with 10, 11 other people who were all long-serving directors of the business. And one of them said, well, We've just had this feedback from the private equity investor who's not going to invest because they think our financial forecast is three million quid profit overstated. What are we going to do? Mm. Now, this is my second board meeting. And I'd gone into the business and, you know, first thing you have a look at is what's the financial forecast and, you know, what, what did we do last year? What did we do the year before? What we forecast in this year? And we just come to the end of our first quarter and the forecast, you know, looked, looked optimistic, not heroic, but definitely optimistic. Yeah. Um, 
And I was very fortunate because I had a good finance team and there was a, a guy at the centre. And I said to him, I said, look, um, just do me a favour. Can you lay out for me sales by quarter going back for the last four or five years? And I was saying to my chief exec, OK, so, you know, when you do the when you do the sales forecast, you know, I get the financial and I get the cash and balance sheet. When you do the sales forecast, who does the sales forecast? Oh, the sales teams do it. Right. OK, so who validates it? Well, what do you mean? It's the sales team do it. You know, they know what we're going to sell to customer A and what we're going to sell to customer B. OK. OK, yeah, but sales teams, sales teams, they're always very optimistic. They're always yeah. in their own trumpets. Yeah, oh, of course they are. So I'm having that conversation over there. And then my quarterly sales statistics come back. And what do you know? For the last few years, the percentage of sales of the full year in quarter one and quarter two and quarter three and quarter four is pretty consistent. Yeah. And we always did 26, 27 percent full year sales in quarter one. And guess what happened when I applied that rationale to this year's forecast? You got the same. Gap. We were we were ten million quid overstated in our sales forecast, <laughs> <laughs> which at a margin of thirty percent was three million quid overstated on our on our on our bottom line. So fast forward to the board meeting, and there's a three million quid. So sort of so I'm sat there looking around the room, <laughs> wondering if anybody else is going to contribute. And I'm on an interim contract here. I haven't actually joined them as a permanent employee yeah. at this point. So they're paying me by the day. I'm looking around. No one else. So I put my hand up. Oh, yes, Paul. Yes, <laughs> it is Paul, isn't it? <laughs> um, I said, well, I've got a fair idea why they might have come to that conclusion. They all look at me. Well, how can you possibly know that? You've only been here five minutes. So I just, look, here are your sales by a quarter. Here's your sales forecast. You know, Bosch, overstated, bam, bam. And they're all looking around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Who's this? <laughs> who, who hired him? We don't like. We don't. We don't like any of this stuff. Um, now that is that's simple arithmetic. Um, you know yeah. that is the, the 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 very simple moral of that story is an actual's quite likely to be an actual, but a forecast pinch of salt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you need to look back at, well, you know, what was the accuracy of previous forecasts? How was the forecast derived? As you said, who derived the forecasts? Yep. And in this business, you know, the, the sales guys were, were building the forecast. Well, not only are sales guys, you know, cheery, optimistic, um, uh, you know, glass half full types, and we love them for it. Um, but also, you know, the guy doing account A was building the account A forecast and the guy doing account B was building the account B forecast and account A was going to have a sales promotion and account B was going to have a sales promotion. So they both put in their uplifts. Well, the total market wasn't, it wasn't going to go up. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So you've, all, you've always got to have a degree of realism. Well, As yeah. was an, another thing you could have looked at going back and you probably didn't have the information. It's not just what are your sales by quarter, but against each time, what was the sales forecast for that quarter? And I bet if you'd had that, Paul, you'd have found similar inconsistencies that sales were always 10% or 15% higher mm. than the real number that had come in. Well, we'd had that, you know, on, you know, overall in the business because i mean that was that was why the bank had got mm. um uh pretty arsy with us because you know they'd been getting this <clears throat> forecast that was up here and then the, you know the actual would come in significantly below and that had been going on for some time yeah yeah um, 
so that was that was a you know a clear a clear indicator but you know it was yeah and sh- shocks like that do do come along and make things really happen to tra- transform a business and yeah. i remember going into a in a similar way to you going into something as a in an interim way to sort out some fu- some accounting problems on a, a couple of coal-fired power stations because uh, they, they weren't worried about profit they were only worried really about cost of producing electricity yep. um the cost of running the stations and they'd been going in saying all year we're on target we're on budget we're on budget we're on budget right until literally year end 31st december christmas eve oh we're not going to hit budget by two million quid suddenly the the parent company was was overseas suddenly the uk company had a two million deficit in its accounts that was material went back yes it was a bit material to the overseas holding company and Basically, there was a, a bit of a shitstorm. Muggins here was was called in. I think it was at the end of, well, we think we've done a bit of an investigation to work out what's gone wrong. We need a whole load of stuff fixing. You do financial transformation, Kevin. Can you come in and fix it for us, please? <laughs> yeah. 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 But, um, yeah. I, I can relate to all of that going into new organizations, Paul, and finding mm-hmm. stuff. And one of the bits of gross CFOs, um, future CFO program that I, I teach is the, the very last module, which is your first hundred days as CFO. Yeah. And kind of in that module, we cover you know, how should you approach those hundred days? And one of the key points is you, you know, you're on a honeymoon period. You're the new guy. Yeah. You've got a lovely piece of time there that you can get away with asking the stupid questions. That's definitely true. Um, but, you know, you can also you can make a fairly big difference fairly quickly. I mean, the 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 beauty of the story I've just told you is that, you know, having accepted the issue, we corrected the issue by building in central contingencies into the forecasting, yeah. went back to the bank, um, were candid with the bank um, who you know understood what we'd done, understood that we'd corrected the forward forecast and we persuade them to stay in. Yeah. Um, so we turned a, you know, a, a suspicious negative bank into one who understood and who, you know, stood, stood by us for the next few years. So, um, you know, the down, the, 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 you know, there's basically, you, you can find some negative stuff, but then by correcting it, you mm. can have a significant positive impact on the organization. Yeah. So you're there as an interim, Paul. Did they keep you on? Yeah. The, the, when the bank refinanced, they wrote my name to the bank documents, so I didn't have a whole lot of choice. <laughs> choice. <laughs> so was, was that your... We, we got you in your career as far as um, BICC. Yeah. So was, was this this one the next role after BICC? Uh, no. So so um, BICC, I then did a, a number of you know, shorter term assignments. Um, I did a really nice job in the in the travel sector. Um, again, they had a similar issue with forecasting and seasonality because, boy, is retail travel seasonal. Um, <clears throat> I've worked in in subsequent businesses, and people talk about seasonality, and you know, they've they've got no idea what true seasonality is. The seasonality in the travel business on a retail is is massive you've got this huge spike in january february as everybody sort of comes out of christmas and books the summer holidays this is all oh, pre-covid oh, yes. 
uh, when they get another big spike coming into May and June, is what they call the lates. Um, but yeah, that was another you know interesting business where again you can come in and you can ask the stupid questions and get under the hood quite quickly and um, you know start start you know pointing out that that forecasts could be uh, could be better if we're being polite. Um, um, so yes, yeah, so I did some uh, relatively shorter term assignments, which are which are great fun. Um, so again, I would say to anybody early in their career, you know, if you are between jobs, don't sniff at interim jobs because interim jobs are a great way of getting expert, uh, getting expertise and um, and knowledge of different sectors in a fairly accelerated timeline. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so I'd um, one of the next jobs along was, <clears throat> and this was a very strange business. It was um, uh, called Barter Trust, and it ran barter exchanges, which aren't really a thing in the UK. In fact, that's one of the things they were trying to do um, was to was to bring it into the UK. Um, but this was a business that was a it, it sort of, we, we're, we're talking 2000, 2001, dot-com boom, lots of money swishing about, and they were trying to do a roll-up. Yes. Um, because the, the strategy was to bring barter exchanges into the UK. They wanted a UK-based FD, even though most of the business was based in the States. So um, I, I joined them, um, found myself um, in, in the States. One of the things they were doing was, was moving the head office from San Francisco to Chicago. Yeah, you know, stuff, stuff you can't possibly train for. Um, so for a period of about three weeks, I had an office, a corner office, um, in San Francisco with a view of the Bay, which was, which was rather, rather splendid. Um, one of the things. Hey, how did you do that one from Wilmslow? <laughs> yeah, was a fair bit of travel, fair, fair few air miles involved, not very carbon neutral, but you know, we're talking sort of, uh, getting over 20 years ago now. <clears throat> um, but um, so one of the things I had to do there was sort of get us out of the um, the property lease because they bless them they leased two floors of this massively expensive um, high rise in downtown San Francisco so I had to walk into the the property agent and say you're not going to have to let us off this lease or I'm going to bust the company yeah um, so that you know, that was a uh, that, that was a that was a lesson but then. <sighs> And this is a very, very strange example that will be of no specific relevance to anybody um, listening to this podcast, but the, but the principles are the same. When you run a barter exchange, you, you, are, you are running a mini economy. Yes. And the previous um, FD had presided over a period where the revenues of the economy were falling. And it was a slightly strange um, business in that there were some people who joined who were sort of you know super young private equity you know we're going to grow this business rah 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 uh, there was some sort of more older experience to hands and then there were the experienced uh, owners of barter exchanges that we had acquired um, so I sort of went around and had a chat with a few of these folks and they said well and I said, well, you know, what's happened? Why is why have some of these exchanges slowed down? And he said, well, because the previous FDs changed the rules. And I said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, we used to spend barter dollars in our own exchange economy. And he's told us we shouldn't be doing that. 
So that was quite interesting because this guy had a central banker background. And when you when you think about a barter exchange, what you've got with barter exchanges, and if if you if you don't know how they work, it's worth doing a search because there's dozens, if not hundreds, in the United States, and they allow companies, typically regionally, to trade surplus goods and services. So typical users of a barter exchange will be um, limousine services, who've always got spare capacity, hotels, who've always got spare rooms, radio stations, who've always got spare airtime to advertise, laundry services, who can always do more. So it's businesses that typically have, you know, significantly more capacity than they're typically utilizing and it's a way of of increasing utilization trading amongst themselves in a local area and it works really well it's just never taken off in the uk but it works really well in the states um so i started looking at this and i thought well actually what you're actually doing is you've actually got your own economy and in the same way that the um an economy is allowed to print money is allowed to stimulate an economy and you've seen rishi doing that you know with all the covid money that's being poured in he's basically throw 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 a few billion pound notes into it spending money we haven't got um uh, in order to stimulate the economy it was possible to do that within barter exchanges um so i basically wrote this up um took it to the auditors the auditors were happy with it um uh created a revised policy framework which we then extended by creating a trading desk where we bought surplus goods as a company in real dollars and then sold them into the exchange for trade dollars and of course we made the commission and a combination of this more than doubled the revenue of the business inside 12 months Um, and that was that came from literally asking the people who'd been in that business for a long period of time, what's changed, what works, you know, what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. And then taking that on board and exploiting it. Hmm. I think going, going back into what you do in your first hundred days of the new CFO, you go and talk to as many people as you possibly can. Yes find out as much as possible and that's your own team that you've you've inherited what works in finance what doesn't work what gives you the biggest problems where's your bottlenecks Mm. and don't go around all the other functions get a get their view on on your finance function and what they give the rest of the business and don't but the business in general how does it work how does it tick yeah because outside of the smallest startup there is typically in any in any business of any maturity there is a huge amount of accumulated wisdom. Yes. Um, you know, often with the, you know, the, the long serving employees that, that newer managers have often given up talking to. <laughs> um, and, you know, going and, you know, ha- having those conversations, you know, as part of induction, as part of learning curve can be hugely valuable. Yeah, that, that reminds me of another thing, kind of being a, a change guy, you know, that that's, old established employee that'll tell you when you've got this new initiative that'll never work around here well actually he's the first person that i want to get on my business change team please yeah yes if i can convince him that something's worth changing he'll convince the rest of the organization 
Well, and actually sometimes even better than that, because he'll say, well, it, well, when we tried it 10 years ago, it didn't work. Well, you know, sometimes you can ignore that. The really interesting bit is when we tried it 10 years ago, it didn't work because dot, dot. Exactly. And that's that's the real information. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not so that it didn't tell work. Me, tell me a bit more about that. <laughs> yes. Not that it didn't work last time, but why didn't it work last yeah. time? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And now coming in as the, the new boy, you can ask all those silly questions. As we said, it's your perfect opportunity to find out. And now you've given a couple of examples there, Paul, of you know stumbling over a problem that was actually a very major problem to the business, except yes. they hadn't quite got their head around it. And that yes. classic one of the, yes. the sales forecast is always wrong. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, any inherently any forecast is wrong. It's just, it's just, you know, it, it, where it's, where it's consistently wrong, um, it, you, you need to establish why is there a systemic issue and fix it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it. And fix it is the important bit because yeah. you keep on doing the same things. Guess what? You'll get the same outcomes. Yeah, yeah, and that's where the, that's where the CFO's role is an interesting one because you know uniquely amongst the the board, you've got the access to all the information. Hmm. Um, you know, you've got access to you know all of all of the all of the data, all the KPIs, um, and that that gives you a unique insight. Yeah. Into the operation of the business. So, Paul, that's a fantastic career. Thinking about all of those things that you've been involved in, all those lessons that you've learned over time. I guess I go back to that how did you get to where you were in Ford? And it was kind of, you know, there were a lot of good people around you. You watched, you learned, you copied, you saw what, what they did, you took the bits that were good, you forgot the bits that were bad. Now, I know you've got to that point in your career, you want to pass on an awful lot of that to the next generation. So if somebody was approaching you potentially as maybe a, a mentor, what, what's that special ingredient that you think you've got to offer? Oh gosh, that's the $64 million question. It certainly is. Um, I'll even give look, you I think, I think We'll cut the recording for a second. Kevin, <laughs> yes. Um, uh, look, I've been hugely fortunate. Um, I, I've been I've been very fortunate in my career. Um, it, you know, not 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 every career um, goes as you planned it, and we've already talked about that. Yes, I've had setbacks. Yes, I've been made redundant. Um, but you know, you you respond to that, and you you know you you make you make the best of it. So, you know, net when you look back of it, I've been in, I've been incredibly fortunate. Um, yes, I've learned quite a bit of stuff along the way. Um, one of the things you learn is, you know, try not to be arrogant, try not to be a smart ass. So when you get asked the question, like, you know, so, well, you know, why, why would somebody want me to mentor them? <laughs> you, sort of, uh, you think, well, hmm, uh, uh, you don't want to, you don't want to come across as being sort of, as, as being sort of brash or, or in any way not humble, because I think, you know, humility is, is important. Um, yeah, but there's a, there's a couple of things there I'd pick up on already, Paul. You say, I've worked, you've, I've you've worked. been made redundant. Well, actually, I'd argue you've never been made redundant. Your job has been made redundant. You haven't. Well, that's true as well. Um, and, no, you're, you're there. You've had a lot of good fortune. I remember uh, one, one of my sort of role model heroes, South African golfer, Gary Player. And one of the things Gary Player says, the more I practice, the luckier I get. <laughs> yes. 
Yes, but you do, you know, you need you do need some good fortune. Um yeah. you need to be in the right place at the right time. So what would I say to somebody who 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 might be interested in in speaking to me? Um I've I've had a lot of different experience across and across different sectors. And again, one of the things I've learned is that is that you know, whilst some of the skills of a CFO are transferable, working across different sectors just does give you an experience and a perspective where you can, you know, see you can you can see into things more quickly. So um I'm I'm used to being able to see issues and, and problems um, reasonably quickly and also used to trying to find ways of of turning those into opportunities. Um, uh, I've, I've worked with a wide range of uh, different people and different skill sets. Um, so, you know, I've built up uh, techniques which enable me to relate to, 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 different, to different people and, and different styles of management. Which I think is important, um, and I think for for FDs and and CFOs generally, I think it is important for for them to have somebody who they can bounce things off, and that person, you know, definitely isn't their boss, often isn't the chairman, often aren't peers within with whom you have a sort of a slight, inherently slightly competitive relationship. So I think you know it is valuable to have somebody that you can bounce things off, um, and uh, you know I'm I'm I would hope to be able to play that play that role, and I think it's something I can I can do and add value. Paul, I wish you every success in taking that angle of of life forward, and I can just see you've got so much there to potentially hand over to the next generation. It's, it's a real great place to be. Um, Paul, thank you very much for being our guest on this week's Grow CFO show. Kevin, uh, thank you so much. I've enjoyed speaking to you.